Yeah, I hope you had some time to reflect on the teachings. Um, they're really quite applicable to our lives, uh, which is why the Buddha first taught them. Yeah, because he wanted to really emphasize to us what our lives are about so that then we could start to uh, envision something else. So, uh, when we start with our morning uh, recitations, we are envisioning something else because we're remembering that we're in the um, presence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who are looking at us with happiness and all the sentient beings are around us and they're not uh, um, looking at us like Neh. They're, they're actually quite pleased with what we're doing. They're reinforcing our uh, Dharma practice. And when you think of wanting to help others, especially in the time of COVID, uh, one way to help them is through our practice. And by modifying our mind, by transforming our mind, then we can really do much more good in the world. So bring the med the visualization to mind. Okay, so calm your mind, come back to your breath. Let's cultivate our motivation. So it's Sunday morning in America. And Sunday morning is one of the most segregated times in America. Because by and large, most churches are uh, people go to where there are other people who look like them. But in Buddhism, we're training our mind to see beyond superficial appearances. Those are, those differences exist, we aren't negating them. But we're saying it's more important to look into people's hearts than to look at what they look like, how they dress, and so forth, external things. Because when we really uh, spend time and look deeply into people's hearts, we find that we are all the same, wanting happiness and not suffering.
So different things may make us happy. Different things may cause us suffering. But when we can look into people's heart and see the universality of the wish for happiness and not pain, then we know something very important about each living being, not just human beings, also animals and insects. And seeing that there's no difference between us and others in that respect, then we can respect others. We can appreciate what they do in their efforts to find happiness and avoid suffering. And we can also appreciate that, like us, they are confused about what causes happiness and what causes suffering. And in that way, avoid anger and disparagement towards others who think differently than we do. And based on this equanimity that takes away our biases, then we can generate love, wishing others to have happiness and and compassion, wishing them to be free of suffering, and generate that towards all living beings. And that compassion, when we intensify it and decide to take responsibility for being of benefit to sentient beings, bringing them happiness, reducing the causes of their suffering, then that leads to generate bodhicitta, the aspiration for full awakening. Because, as a Buddha, we'll have the best internal situation to be of the greatest benefit. So let's make that motivation the centerpiece of our life, the most important thing in our life. And... Let's have it be the motivation for sharing the Dharma today as well. It's really quite amazing how 
we find all sorts of ways to divide each other and uh, make ourselves different from others and make others different from us to the extent that now when I found when I talk about this Buddhist perspective of have of generating love and compassion for everybody equally, some people are kind of mad about it. Yeah. They say, but you're ignoring my culture or my race or my this, my that, my unique ability as a minority. And it's so strange when you've spent you know, years in your Dharma practice trying in your own mind to break down your biases to have people then come and say, you know, but I want to be seen as different because I am different. Yeah. So to see, you know, we do recognize people as different. But the idea is, you know, and ourselves is different. But the idea is not to have bias uh, favoring one group and not favoring the other group. But I think the easiest way to avoid avoid the bias is to really look in the hearts, like I led in the meditation, and seeing how we're all the same. Because once we start seeing differences then our mind can take the ball and run with that. Some years ago I was uh, invited to give a talk at Harvard to uh, the Buddhist group, and it was open, you know, to everybody who came. And this was just at the beginning of the woke movement. I didn't know about the woke movement at that moment. And so I spoke just the way I spoke now because this is what I've been training my mind in for 44 years now. No, uh, 46 years. Okay, I've been training my mind like this. Well, some of the students were really mad at me. Yeah, this, this is the educated elite students, yeah, who uh, got mad because uh, I was talking about the commonality among human beings. And, you know, you're not recognizing how I'm different and my culture and um, just all sorts of questions. I won't go into it right now. But it was very surprising for me, you know. And when we look at the political divide in the country now, too, yeah, and people, uh, you know, even in the same party, criticizing each other, and everybody's saying, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, you don't listen to me. It's just... uh, we are digging ourselves into a big hole. Yeah. So it, to me, it shows why Buddhism uh, and the Buddhist perspective is more important than ever to uh, 
to integrate in our own minds and to share with other people. So when we're talking about the four truths, yeah, we're going to go through that passage um, from the Establishment of Mindfulness Sutra again this morning uh, to see it as applying to all of us. It's not just me, okay? And so it's not just about my Dharma practice and my samsara and the cause of my samsara, and I want my nirvana, and I want the conditions that are best for practicing the true path for me, Yeah, that we, we read this, yes, it is about us, and it is about everybody else. Okay? If we leave ourself out of it and just, regard this as a way to have compassion for others, our compassion won't be so deep because we have to see our own situation for what it is and really having have a feeling of repulsion towards it. And then, because we do cherish ourselves more than others, so that feeling comes stronger when we think about ourselves, and then when we spread it to others, it really breaks down the barriers. Yeah, if we just meditate on compassion for others, that they're stuck in samsara, the compassion is not so strong. We don't feel it because we're not including ourselves. Okay? So this is why, you know, we start with ourselves and go to others instead of starting with others and coming back to ourselves. Because if we just cultivate compassion for others, we are avoiding looking at our own situation. Okay? We're somehow ducking out of it and saying, others are suffering so much, but I'm impervious. Or actually, I know I'm just like them, but I don't want to really look look at that because it's too scary. Okay. But we have to be able to look at it for ourselves and others. Okay. So there was one question uh, that came in yesterday afternoon. Um, Is craving the Dharma part of dukkha? Okay. Craving the Dharma, what does that mean? Okay. Now think of what craving means in your ordinary life. When you crave understanding, when you crave sex, when you crave for company to remove your loneliness. Yeah. What is that, the quality of that craving like? When you crave a good, reputation. Okay. That kind of craving has a certain energy in your mind, doesn't it? When you want to learn the Dharma, is the energy of wanting to learn the Dharma the same as when you're craving 
the eight worldly concerns and sense pleasure. It's completely different, isn't it? The state of your mind, even the feeling in your body is different. So there you have the answer to your question. What does create some problems sometimes is, uh, again, vocabulary, translation terms, and trying to find good terms in English that match the meaning in, in Sanskrit or Tibetan or Pali. So the word desire is one of those very ambiguous words because desire can be used for sensual desire. You know, I want my chocolate and I want this and I want that. Okay. But desire can also be used to mean aspiration. I desire to be a better person. I desire to be a kinder person. So desire has two different meanings. Sometimes when people translate one or the other word in another language to desire, then meaning desire, then we confuse the meanings. Okay? So like you'll hear, desire is an affliction, and then people say, well, is desiring liberation and full awakening, is that an affliction? No, it's not. There's different meanings of the word desire. Okay? So then you explain the good kind of desire, and then they say, well, then is desire for uh, my family to be rich and wealthy and have more than everybody else, then that must be virtuous. Well, no, when you're privileging some people, yeah, uh, robbing from the somebody else to feed your, your own family, um, you know, then that's not so good. Okay, so we really have to pay attention to, to context here. Okay, there is one, so that has to do with translation, but there is one time I found in Tibetan when they talk about, uh, there's one prayer for to Chenresi, where they talk about Chenresi being attached to sentient beings, like a mother to her child. Okay, and they use the word that is usually translated as attachment, as one of the six root afflictions. Okay, so then people read and they go, Chenrezig has attachment? Yeah, well, no, Chenrezig doesn't have attachment, but they're using that word in that circumstance to indicate that the strong feeling that a parent has for their child is the same strength of the feeling we have for all living beings. Okay, not just for your own child, but for everybody. Okay, so that's what it's, you know, indicating in that situation. So again, you know, I like the word, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but I hope it's helpful, like the word self, it has different meaning, two different, very different meanings in Buddhism. Sometimes it means I or the person. 
the self that exists. Yeah. Sometimes self means inherent existence, which doesn't exist and is the object to be negated. Okay. So again, when you're reading a passage, you have to figure out which meaning of self they're talking about in the passage. Otherwise, you'll get very confused. And similarly, in some, uh, you know, of the Indian writings about emptiness, sometimes they will include the word inherently and as inherently exist, and sometimes they won't, and they'll just say exist. And they're assuming that you put inherently in there. But again, if you, you, you know, this is precisely why we need to listen to teachings. Yeah, because sometimes just reading the scriptures, we don't come out with the proper understanding. Yeah. So you have to get expla- explanations about when is Nagarjuna negating inherent existence, and when is he talking about just regular conventional existence? Okay, so again, an awareness of context that reflects our need to uh, to study and to uh, you know not just interpret things our own way, but to really learn from those who know more than us. That's why, uh, you know, in India they wrote the root text. Then some people even wrote auto-commentaries on their own text to explain what they mean in the verses. And then their students and other people wrote more commentaries on it. So to make sure that we understand things properly. And so then we have commentaries upon commentaries. Yeah, you get the idea. Okay, so let's see what Buddha said Yeah, in this sutra. Okay, so, and what monastics is the Arya truth of dukkha? So birth is dukkha. Do we usually think of birth as dukkha, as something unsatisfactory? No, when babies are born, everybody's happy. Look, there's a new baby. But from another viewpoint, it means one more being is in samsara. Yes, they have a human life, but they may not have a precious human life. Human life and precious human life are different, okay? But the whole process of birth is an uncomfortable one, yeah? For the baby and certainly for the mother. That's why they call it labor, okay? And they say that's the uh, strongest kind of labor that you ever do, okay? So birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. I think we agree on that. Yeah. But what's really weird in our society is nobody wants aging. And we do everything we can to avoid it. Yeah. And yet, so we come out with a whole range of beauty products 
so your skin doesn't age. We have a whole range of hair products to dye your hair, you know, to get hair when you, when you don't have hair. And it's not just for women, it's also for men. They're dying here, dying here. Look at the former president, you know, and his fixation with his hair, yeah, so as not to look old. Yeah? And then watching the body, you know, the shape of the body changes you age, and your ability to do things changes you age. And we are all aging, and yet in our culture, we glorify youth. So that is very crazy-making, because we're glorifying what nobody is becoming. Yeah? And we're glorifying these bodies we see in magazines that have been, um, what is uh, airbrushed. So they look thinner, you know, they don't have pimples, they don't have freckles, they don't have scars, you know, they, they look just perfect. But uh, the people who those are pictures of don't actually look like that, okay? So everybody is trying to be what they are not, okay? If that doesn't bring some psychological discordance in our mind, I don't know what does, okay? And how... Even from the time we're very young, this is put in our mind, you know. When they have these child beauty contests for little girls trying to make them look sexy, yeah, what does it imprint in these kids' minds? Yeah, and for the little boys, you know, trying to be the big he-men and, you know, jump on everybody else, you know, these stereotypes are so damaging. And yet, they get passed down from one generation to the next. Yeah. I remember being with one family one time. Uh, they're a Buddhist family. And uh, they had a little boy. He, how old was he? Maybe a year and a half, two years. Yeah. And he was crying. And the mother said to him, boys, don't cry. Stop crying. And I cringed. You know, I cringed. What's wrong with boys crying, especially when they're little? You know, and what's wrong with grown men crying? Yeah, doesn't that make them much more human? Doesn't that help them process their their emotions? Okay. So I'm not advocating that we all cry as much as we can. Some people need to cry less. <laughs> Okay, I won't point out names, but you know who you are, and we all know who you are. <laughs> but some people, maybe it would help them to cry a little bit, you know, to get in touch with their feelings.
Okay. And I don't have stock in the Kleenex company. That's not why I'm encouraging it. Okay. So aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha for sure, isn't it? Yeah. Then sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are dukkha. These we'll have an explanation of those coming. Okay. Yeah. Encountering the undesired is dukkha. Yeah, we do everything to avoid what we don't like. And it comes anyway. Yeah. We don't want suffering. We don't like to be near disagreeable people. Yeah. But they're they're all around us. <laughs> and you know, suffering comes. Often when we think now I am well protected, yeah, then boing it comes. Yeah. Being separated from the desired, so we get what we want and then we lose it. Yeah. You have this fantastic relationship. They even, you know, did a thing about your your marriage in the New York Times, complete, you know, with pictures of the wedding and just how beautiful everybody looks and the how wonderful, happy everybody is. And then, <laughs> what happens after the wedding? Yeah, what happens after the wedding? Does everybody live happily ever after? We are told in the fairy tales that we that we all read when we were little or got read to us when we were little, yeah, that you get married and then you live happily ever after. Okay, who do you know who has lived happily ever after? Okay, but we all think we will be the one exception. Okay, yeah, or you get a new car, yeah, and it gets dented. Yeah. You get a new computer, <laughs> and we know what happens to computers. Yeah. Once you have a computer, you now enter computer hell. Yeah. When it doesn't work properly. Yeah. When it. I'm very familiar with computer hell, aren't I? Yeah. Okay. Um, not getting what one wants is dukkha. We want so much, and we do everything right so that we can get what we want. We follow all the rules. We do everything right, and we still can't get what we want. Okay? You know, you have your degree. You, you know, you can go out. You got the right job. Do you ever have enough money? 
do you know anybody who has enough money? Now, we talked about this once before, and somebody said, but there's a group of wealthy people who have decided to give all their wealth away before they die. And I said, yes, they do that the day before they die. Okay, some people do it sooner, but that's because they have so much wealth that as soon as they give it away, more comes because of investments and tax uh, loops. Yeah. Don't tax loopholes. Yeah, loopholes. So the wealthy don't pay nearly as much tax percentage-wise as they should. Yeah. But we can't always get what we want. And that's suffering, isn't it? And sometimes, coming back to the theme of causality, we expect to get what we want without creating the causes. <laughs> yeah. And that's an even better route to, to uh, suffering. Yeah. When we expect to, uh, uh, yeah, that laws don't apply to us, rules don't apply to us. Yeah, requirements don't apply to us, that we will get what we want without uh, creating the causes. You know, we'll just go around things. Okay, in short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. Yeah, so these clung to aggregates that we appropriated at the time, you know, after the death of our previous life. Yeah, then through craving and clinging, wanting another body, wanting more polluted aggregates. And at that time, we got what we wanted. And we were reborn in samsara. So that's when we say, be careful of what you want, because you might get it. When our mind is very attached to having the five aggregates, we will get them, and we will be miserable with them. Okay, so that's why the determination to be free and renouncing suffering, the dukkha of samsara, is so important. And what monastics is the Arya truth of the origin of suffering? Ah, I know what's the cause of my suffering. My parents, yeah, they did this and they did that when I was younger, and they didn't do this and they didn't do that, and that's why I'm so screwed up. Then, in addition to my parents, other people, especially my boss, Yeah, and my colleagues. My colleagues are competitive. My boss is prejudiced against me. Yeah. Speaking of prejudice, the whole society, that's the cause of my suffering. I'm unique. You know, my life matters. And you don't respect my life. And you are discriminating against who I am. You know, I saw photos of a group standing there with signs that say, white life matters. 
Yeah. So now, yeah, Thomas Jefferson and company are saying, we're discriminated against. Okay. So other people, yeah. Who else? The government. There's the cause of my, my suffering. Yeah. They didn't. Who else? Yeah. Oh, I already hit my mother. I hit my father. My husband. My wife. Yes, I love them dearly. At least I did when they took that photo for the New York Times on our wedding day. But now they're driving me crazy. It's COVID and I'm locked up in the flat with only them all day. And my kids that I love are driving me crazy and I pull my hair out because of it. And look what I look like now. Okay. So... We usually think, who's the cause of all of our problems? Other people. Yeah, this is one of the number one things we learn in Buddhism, is it is not other people. It is our own afflictions. And that's what the Buddha tells us here. Okay, it is the craving that gives rise to rebirth. Because once we're born in samsara, all the other kinds of dukkha come automatically. Okay, the craving that is, gives rise to rebirth, bound up with delight and attachment. Ooh, chocolate. Yeah. Those little ice cream cones that somebody offered the other day, they were really good. Yeah, we should have those every day except I'll get tired them after a few days and I'll want something new and better. Yeah. How about a good reputation? Now, we could use that. Yeah. We're bound up with delight and attachment to certain things. Seeking fresh delight, now here, now there. Yeah. Oh, this activity was so wonderful. Except now I'm tired of it. And I don't go and learn this activity. Uh, that's so wonderful. Except now I'm tired of that too. Okay. I want fresh delight. Yeah. My tea curl curdled this morning. Ugh. I want fresh tea where the milk is not curdled. Have you ever looked into your teacup and seen the milk separate out from, from the, the water tea and it's floating in there, mushing around? That degree of suffering is incomprehensible. <laughs> Because you're relying on your morning tea to wake you up. <laughs> okay. Fresh delight, now here, now there. Anything to give us pleasure. That is to say, sensual craving. Now we heard the, hear the tame sensual craving and we think, no, I don't have that. That's what all those pedophiles have. Okay, you know, I don't have, because sensual craving sounds really bad, doesn't it? 
you know, like you're a, uh, what is it, a, 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 um, a lecher, a, a predator, you know, you just leech off of other people, okay? Um, but sensual cra craving refers to we want to see beautiful things and we want to hear beautiful sounds, yeah? So we want to hear the music of our generation, not the music of our parents' generation, not the music of our children's generation. Okay, we want to hear nice sounds. Okay, especially, I love you, you're wonderful, you are talented, you are so intelligent. Yeah, we like to hear those sounds. Okay. We want to hear good smells, okay? So we, we don't want to uh, uh, be in Delhi, <laughs> yeah, where, uh, you know, in some parts of Delhi where I cannot describe the smells to you, okay? Um, basically, it smells like toilets because there aren't any toilets except the streets, okay? We don't want that. Yeah, we want nice smells. Okay, but everybody, of course, has different versions of nice smells. Okay, tastes. Okay, we want food that tastes good to our liking. We want nice, sensual things. The room has to be the right temperature. Okay, if it's too warm, we open the window. Then the other people in the room are freezing. They go and close the window. We did, uh, an, one place I was at, we did skits after retreat. And this was a beautiful skit of the people opening and closing the window in the meditation hall. <laughs> okay? Yeah. We want our bed to be just the right degree of hardness or softness. Okay, we want nice, smooth feelings against our skin. Okay, we don't want rough, horrible feelings. We're very attached to these things, aren't we? This is sensual craving. Okay, craving for existence. We, we want existence in samsara. And specifically here, it's referring to existence in the form and formless realms where they don't have the obvious kind of dukkha from pain that we have, okay? And we want the craving for non-existence, which is usually, some sometimes it's described as craving for neutral feelings or simply to cease existing because your life is too painful. Okay, so we're tormented by all this kind of, of craving because we don't have a perfect situation, even though we are seeking that perfect situation. Okay. So when we meditate on those first two, hopefully we come out saying, I want to get out of samsara. And then when we look at others and say they're experiencing this too, we say, I want them to get out of samsara as well. 
because we're all equal. I'm not special. And what, monastics, is the Arya truth of the cessation of dukkha? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, abandoning, letting go, and detachment from craving. Okay? And ignorance and all the other afflictions. Okay? So the destruction of the afflictions so that they can no longer arise in the mind, that is a state of of incredible peace. And what monastics is the Arya truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this Arya eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Okay. As Mahayana practitioners, we would say bodhicitta. But if you took right intention and amplified it, it could become bodhicitta. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, the passage that the Buddha spoke. Yeah. Then to look more closely at the Buddha's description of true dukkha. Now comes His Holiness's explanation. We are already aware of the suffering involved in birth, sickness, aging, and death. Sorrow. Okay, remember when he said sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are dukkha? So sorrow is our response to misfortune and disagreeable situations. Okay? When sorrow intensifies so that it becomes unbearable, we cry out or we weep. This is lamentation. Okay? Pain refers to physical pain of whatever sort, from injury or accident or just aging. Dejection is mental pain, unhappiness, depression, yeah, feeling left out, excluded, unappreciated. Due to pain or dejection, Suffering becomes overwhelming and we despair. There's no hope. There's no help. Giving up hope because we see no recourse to solve our difficulties. When you read these, have you ever had those situations of sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair? Hmm. We've all experienced that. Yeah. And we know other people that have. And these seem to be quite a theme during COVID times. Yeah. And during the last four years, actually. Okay. So the Buddha knew what he was talking about when he described our situation. Okay. And don't think that the people you're jealous of are immune to these things. When we're jealous, 
we often think that the people we're jealous of, they have it really good. They don't experience the suffering that we experience. But they do. They do. They may have a different garden variety of it, but they do. I was uh, asked to um, be the, I don't know what you call it, the officiant at the the a memorial service for Bill Gates's best friend. This was uh, many years ago, and it was held at the the Gates's estate. And you know, these people, in terms of samsara, to to the worldly view, yeah, they have the ultimate success. And the Gateses are, are they're some of the people who are giving their money away while they're alive. And they're doing it for very, very good causes, you know, which I really appreciate. But they are not uh, immune to all these things, birth, death, aging, sick, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair, you know? Because there it was, their best friend died. Okay. And after doing that memorial service, which was really, it was a very beautiful memorial service because the widow um, had this, her amazing attitude. Her attitude was so amazing towards her husband's death um, and what happened. I've never met anybody, you know, who's lost a, a loved one who's had that attitude. Because um, she stood up there, and it, her husband's name was John, and she said, you know, John, I love you with all my heart, and you aren't here now, and now I'm going to share all that love with everybody else. And she smiled, and she was radiant, yeah, she wasn't crying. She was taking the love that she had for her husband and amplifying it and sharing it. Yeah. And the way she, you know, when her husband was dying, um, how, the situation with the kids, because her kids were like, they were young, I, I can't remember, around five, seven, like that. And um, they continued with their normal activities. Yeah, they saw Dad. They went to say goodbye to Dad. Yeah, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. Yeah, so the kids, you know, the kids managed. And the dad wrote this beautiful long thing of what he learned in life. Yeah, and about life that he was leaving for his kids so that when they got older, they could read it. You know, they read it when they were young, but especially when they're older and they need guidance about ethics and morals and so on and positive attitude. 
then they would have that. Yeah, it was it was really uh, something quite amazing. Yeah, but here they were, you know, birth, aging, sickness, death, and can't control it. And there it is. Okay, encountering the undesired is meeting with what is disagreeable. I made this plan and it's they changed it. <laughs> or the plan I made didn't get to the person it needs to get to. Or I made a plan and they didn't like it. <laughs> okay? Or that that's just one example. And that's one of the first things you know you learn living at the Abbey. Is whatever plan you make, that's not the way things are gonna turn out. Okay. Actually you don't need to be here to learn it. You just need to be alive. It happens everywhere. Okay. But uh here especially. Okay, um, Okay. meeting with what is disagreeable. However much we try to avoid difficulties, they keep coming in one form or another. We encounter relationship and financial problems, as well as prejudice, injustice, and climate change. Yeah. Okay. And being separated from the desired. So this occurs when we have what we like and then are separated from it. Once we have friends, relatives, a job, an income, a good reputation, and so forth, we do not want to lose them. Although we cling to these, it is impossible to hold on to them forever because they are transient by their very nature. Just by having something, we're already in the process of being separated from it because nothing lasts forever. The greater our attachment, the more painful our eventual separation from these things will be. For this reason, the Buddha said that worldly things are unsatisfactory and lack the ability to bring lasting happiness. Okay, so it's really true, the more attached we are to something, the more suffering we experience when we are separated from it. At that time, we think the cause of our pain is being separated from the object we desire. Actually, the cause of our pain is the attachment, the desire, the craving. If we didn't have those grasping minds, then we wouldn't suffer from pain when we're separated from the objects of attachment. Okay? How do you know when you're attached to something? When you lose it and you're unhappy. Okay? So the stronger the un attachment, the more suffering when we're separated from, from what we want. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have relationships with other people, we shouldn't have possessions, and so forth. 
because we are social animals. We gain meaning through of our life through relationships with other people. And we need certain material things to stay alive. Okay, so it doesn't mean cutting off things. It means lessening the attachment, eliminating the attachment to things. Of course, when we're very, very attached to something, yeah, and we don't want to be separated from it, yeah, then it's wiser to begin with not to, to be so close to the object of our attachment. Okay, if you weigh 400 pounds, don't meet your friends in the ice cream store. Yeah, because it's too difficult for you. If you're very attached, you know, this is why they have AA and NA. You know, instead of going out with your friends to drink and drug, you develop friends, you know, who are trying to stop drinking and drugging. Yeah. So you separate out from the situation that brings out your attachment, okay? So that's the reason why as monastics we have different precepts, okay? You know, we don't sing or dance. We don't get married and have sex. We don't play music, okay? Why? Because these things can stir up attachment. We don't drink and drug. Yeah. So there's lots of things like this. Um, the precepts we have that are designed to protect us from situations in which we are near the objects uh, that many people become attached to. Okay? So... The idea is, you know, to approach nirvana, we have to lessen our attachment. And the first way we do that is by keeping precepts. Okay. Then we start learning the antidotes to the attachment. You know, we develop our concentration. We develop wisdom that cuts the root of the attachment. Okay. But we have to start with, at the beginning, avoiding the objects because our mind is just too out of control. Yeah, isn't it? There's some, are there some things that uh, when you're around that is just like, I told myself I wasn't gonna eat this, you know, and the doctor told me not to eat it, but I like it so much. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so however much we want these things, we cannot achieve them to a degree that fulfills us and fall prey to frustration, moodiness, and despondency, right? Yeah, when we don't get what we want, we're moody. Yeah, we complain, we're frustrated, and then we just fall into despondency and say, everything is screwed up. I give up. Yeah. Any of those, uh, are any of those moods or mental states helpful? 
Do they encourage virtue? Do they make us happy? Yeah. So this is why we try and not get attached to things to start with. This experience is common to the rich and the poor, the popular and the lonely, the healthy and the ill. So we often think, like I said before, that the people we're jealous of, they don't have these problems, but they do. Yeah, there's a real problem with fame. When I uh, came back to uh, where I lived at the time after doing that, that memorial service, I took a walk in the park, and I felt so free. I could take a walk in a park. Nobody knew me. You know? Maybe, the, the, well, the people who walked in the park, too, we saw each other. But I was nobody. Yeah. And I realized Bill Gates, Bill and um, Melinda cannot take a walk in the park. Yeah. Their kids can't go out and play in the middle of the street like I used to with all the other kids. Yeah. When you're, when you're famous, when you're wealthy, uh, your life is very limited in some ways. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that you all of a sudden have all of these relatives you never knew existed who just happen to need a loan. Okay? <laughs> but... <laughs> so the above circumstances are fairly easy to discern in our lives. In them, we find three types of dukkha. So the first, evident pain. Okay, that's the dukkha of pain. And that's pretty much what we have been describing there when we talk about the the truth of, of dukkha. Okay, evident pain. Animals, human beings, everybody recognizes that sensation as unpleasant, as painful. Now, given different people experience pain from different things, okay? One person likes one food, another person finds it disgusting, okay? So we don't all find happiness and pain or experience happiness and pain from the exact same things. But some things are similar enough, and some things, you know, it's just variety on a theme. (laughs) Yeah? Okay. So the dukkha of pain, everybody finds that undesirable. Everybody recognizes that as unsatisfactory. If we stop there, we're not seeing the full range of what samsara means. So similarly, when we meditate on compassion, if we just focus on evident pain, which is what we normally do because it's what the world recognizes as painful and undesirable, the other two kinds of pain, not so much. But evident pain, it's easy to create compassion for. And we must have compassion for people who who experience it. 
but we shouldn't leave our compassion at only that. Because then we only have compassion for people when they're in evident pain. When they seem to be doing well, we forget all about the the point that they're in samsara and that any moment they could have evident pain. Okay, so we really have to think of all three types of dukkha here. The second one, unsatisfactory, uh, the unsatisfactory situation of not being able to hold on to the pleasant. So this is called the dukkha of change. Okay, what does that mean? The unsatisfactory situation of not being able to hold on to the unpleasant. To the pleasant. Okay, so you get what you want, and circumstances change, and you lose it. Or you get what you want, and circumstances don't change, external circumstances don't change so much. But your mind changes, and suddenly what brought you happiness before doesn't bring you happiness anymore. Okay? That wonderful wedding that they wrote up in the New York Times? Yeah? Then years later, New York Times is interviewing you for how to uh, have a peaceful divorce. Okay? Or, Or something along that line. Yeah? And we can see that anything... Uh, that pleases our senses, if we have it for too long, it fades. And the same thing that gave us pleasure ceases to give us pleasure. Okay, so here's where computer hell comes in. Your old computer's broken. You get a new computer, okay? So you're happy at getting the new computer because it has all these things that your old computer doesn't have. But then you have to set up your new computer. Okay, is setting up a new computer easy? Yeah, you try and bring over all your preferences from the old computer to the new computer. It doesn't work. You go online for the instructions on how to do it. It doesn't work. You call Venable Jigme in desperation. (laughs) Yeah. Then she comes, and sometimes she can do it, and then sometimes she's looking online. Yeah. And she's getting frustrated. Okay. So you're in computer hell, and then you finally get it set up exactly the way you want, and then it starts having bugs in it. Yeah? And you delete something, and it doesn't delete. Or the Outlook Outlook program, yeah? You want to have frustration? Try Outlook. Yeah? Your Outlook dims. (laughs) because you click the thing so that it will you know say something has been read 
in one second. You click it, and you know, you know, you set it up that way, and then you click your thing and go to the next thing, and it's supposed to read, say that it's already been read, and it doesn't. And then you have to go through and open every single email and then close it again so that it indicates that it's read. Okay, now, you might be saying, why in the world is she talking about these stupidagios? Yeah, there's so much suffering in the world. Why is she talking about this? Why am I talking about stupidagios? To show how we will find suffering in stupidagios, in things that are so inconsequential that we will make ourselves miserable regarding them. Okay? That's why I'm talking about it. You know, yes, there's the big things. You know, you finally made some money, and then, you know, COVID happens, you lose your job, all your money was in bonds, so you lost that. You should, you know, or before in, in 08, you invested in the stock market and it was great and you finally had what you wanted. And then the recession happened and, you know, you, you lost that. Um, the, one of the guys from Volkswagen, one of, uh, I don't know what position he had in the country, in the company, he killed himself. In, in the recession, you know, because he lost everything. Yeah. So, yes, there's that kind of suffering. There's the suffering of having cancer, yeah, and heart disease and kidney disease. There's the suffering of being a vic an innocent victim in a mass shooting, yeah. There's the suffering of being a victim in any shooting, okay. But... Our mind also will make molehills, no, mountains out of molehills, when we should be making molehills out of mountains, okay? And we will get, you know, have frustration about things that are totally ridiculous. True or not true? Yeah, it's true. Okay, and I can give you a list of what I'm frustrated about off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't even need to write that down. My list of what I need to do today, I have to write down. But my frustration about things, I don't need to write that down. Instant recall. Yeah, you'll notice I, I forget names. I don't forget what I'm frustrated about. I don't forget what I'm irritated and annoyed about. Even they're incredibly banal things that, as my mother would say, these should be the greatest of your problems. Okay. So this is, you know, the dukkha of change. Whatever we have, if we keep having it more and more and more, it becomes painful. Yeah. And so when we're unhappy, and they, they always use the example of, of hunger, which is good. You're, you're hungry. 
So you eat. When you first start eating, the suffering of hunger starts to decrease. Okay? What we don't notice is the suffering of being too full is starting. Okay? The more the su- we continue to eat, the more the suffering of hunger decreases. But the more the suffering of eating too much increases until you've eaten too much and then you have a stomachache. If food were really able to provide us with lasting significant happiness, the more we ate, the happier we should be. Okay. If doing well at your job brought you actual satisfaction, yeah, then the more hours you worked, the happier you would be. So eight hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, yeah. Those computer codes that made me so happy. Get me out of here! Okay? So this is one reason why samsara is unsatisfactory. Yeah? Why they say there's no lasting happiness in samsara. So we feel happy in a... uh, how we use language in our relative conventional way. You know, I had one of those chocolate little baby ones. The big ones I don't like. They have, they have too much uh, um, of the cone. I don't like the big cones. But that little one where the cone was little and the little, that was, that was a really good cone. You know, so you get what you want. You have some happiness. But if you keep having it, it makes you miserable. And this, and so when you meditate on this, look at all the things in your life you do to find happiness. You go to Hawaii, yeah, and you're staying at a luxury hotel, yeah, and you go lie on the beach. And how long can you lie on that beach? Okay. How long can you sit and sunbake (laughs) before you want to get up and do something else? So you go in the water. How long can you be in the water before you want to come out of it? Okay. You go surfing in Hawaii. Oh, those waves. How long can you surf before you're exhausted and all you want to do is rest? Everything we look at that we think will bring us lasting happiness, eventually, if we're continually doing that, brings us misery. Okay? So this is why and the Buddha tells us this so that we will want to get out of samsara. He doesn't tell us this to make us miserable. 
We're already miserable, for goodness sakes. He tells us this so that we will want to find a way out of samsara. We will seek what causes our misery, and we will want to get out of it. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. We haven't done the third one. Okay, we've done a page and a half this session. As you like, I, as you know, many of you, I go through things slowly. Yeah, but there's a lot to say with the last one. So time for questions if you have them or comments. Now you're all thoroughly depressed. <laughs> You should, hearing these things, it shouldn't make you depressed and feel like things are useless. What it should do is it should sober your mind so that you're not all like, oh, I want this and I want that and I'm going to get this and I got it and I'm so happy. It makes your mind sober. Yeah. With a sober mind, you can see things clearly. So it's it does it shouldn't make you depressed. Yeah. It makes you down to earth. It makes you more balanced. Okay. Yeah. On that point of balance. Um <laughs> I can see from that example of what you just suggested for meditation that trying to maintain a balance of activities in the external sense yeah. is futile. Like it it's not going to be able to last. Right. Um but I do think that this balance internally is something that we're going for. Oh, yes. And I think that we have to root out disturbing conceptions in order to do that. That but we what? That we have to root out the disturbing Dur conceptions oh, yes, in order to get sure. that inner balance. Yes. But I, my mind is not making the full link. I just kind of know it theoretically. Yes. Can you speak to it a little more? Yeah, that that's because we know things theoretically. But we haven't thought about them in terms of our own experience yet, okay? So that's what you do when you really sit down and reflect on these things. And you, you take, you know, that's why I made a lot of examples, yeah? Because then you look at, well, what are, what are the examples of this in my life? And how does my mind function and work? How do the afflictions arise? you know, uh, in this situation. Yeah, so you have to think about it in terms of your own life. That's the real key to bringing dharma and making it your own and having it be effective. If you just think about it as abstract concepts, that's what it remains. Yeah, so you have to think, you know, uh, like... The, okay, evidence suffering, that's clear. I'm sure you can come up with your list of everything you don't like, you know, uh, automatically. But what about the suffering of change? Yeah? How many times in your life, you know, you've done things, and then the more you do them after a while, you're just tired. Yeah? You want a break. It's nice to begin with, but it's not going to bring lasting happiness. And then, you know, you just look at everything you tried. Yeah? starting Start with the toys that you had when you were little. Yeah? How much 
when the kid across the street had something really cool that you didn't have and you wanted it and you nagged and pestered until finally your parents got it for you and then you play with it a little bit and then what happens? Okay. We can even see this with our kitties. Yeah. At what the, you know what they've discovered with, with pets and with children? You give them a toy, let them play with it for a while, and they like it. Then you take it away and you hide it and introduce something different that they play with. When they start to get tired of the second one, you take that away. You bring the first one back. It saves you a lot of money because now... It appears as a new toy, and they like playing with it again. Okay? So as soon as you take the, you know, you you take it away when they're starting to get tired of it, and then you give it back to them when they're tired of something else, and they like it again. Okay? So that's what we need to do with the kitties. And that's what you do with your ki kids. And they've done research on this in psych departments. Okay? So, um, yeah. It works. <laughs> yeah. Because this is just our dissatisfied mind. <laughs>